0: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and this week on Beyond Politics, we've been focusing on the theme of a vibe shift. It's something that's been squarely on the minds of politics watchers in recent days. For example, Politico opened up their Monday morning playbook newsletter by writing this Quote, it's been a long time, months, years, since we've seen national Democrats in such a good mood about their electoral chances. Over the last few weeks, amid a spate of legislative movement, falling gas prices, stumbling Republican Senate candidates, and the sense of a growing backlash to efforts to restrict abortion, the fight for control of Congress seems to have tightened. Gone are the days when pundits confidently predicted a red tsunami. But is this just a case of Democrats over tilting at windmills Or is it based on real, tangible signs that the fundamental views and drivers of the midterms are shifting? Now, we all work very hard, and I try to work very hard on this show and on our other podcast Great Ideas to try and get out of our own filter bubbles. We all live in them these days. And as a Democrat, I am just as prone as anyone to jumping over any shred of good news that shows that my side might be doing just a little bit better. And there's no better medicine for that than a powerful dose of insight from one of the very top Republican pollsters and strategists out there today. Whit Ayers is a leading Washington, D.C. political consultant with over 30 years of experience in polling and survey research for high-profile political campaigns and associations. He's the founder and president of North Star Opinion Research, which is a national public opinion and public affairs research firm. And he provides message development and strategic insights to high-level political clients, names you know, including Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, Jim Inhofe, John Kennedy, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And his comments and analysis appear in August publications like The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and broadcast on National Public Radio. Wit Ayers, thanks so much for joining us on Beyond Politics.
1: Hey, Matt. Good to be with you.
0: It's absolutely a pleasure to have you. And Who knows? You may be able to correct some of my irrational exuberance that I'm clearly feeling these days. And I think I've got my finger on the general pulse of how Democrats are feeling these days. Let's just kind of start at the highest level kind of question here. I mean, there's no doubt that there's been a change in mood, at least for Democrats. But do you see any meaningful and tangible signs that their electoral position is getting better?
1: Matt, there's no question that having inflation come down and having the Dobbs decision energize Democratic voters. Now, that said, they were lethargic beforehand. So it's not like Democrats are more enthusiastic to vote than Republicans. It's more like it narrowed the gap. What that has also done is narrow the gap on the generic ballot, whether you want a Democrat or a Republican as your House member. It, In some polling has given Democrats a narrow lead, but they would need a, le- a narrow lead to, to stay even given some of the redistricting that occurred after 2010 and 2020. So it has narrowed the gap. But here's your dose of reality. President Biden's job approval is still stuck in the low 40s. And that is danger territory for any party, governing party, with a president whose job approval is that low. Based upon history, we know that the job approval is a critical indicator. When the president's job approval is above 50%, the average loss of house seats is 14 for the president's party on the other hand when it's below 50 percent the average loss is 37 seats for the president's party and joe biden's job approval is at the lower rating of those presidents who have job approval below 50 so even the 14 seat gain for republicans would be enough to flip the house The Senate's another matter. Candidate quality really matters in Senate campaigns more so than House campaigns because senators tend to have a more independent reputation. They tend to be better known in their states. For example, a number of Republican senators ran ahead of Donald Trump in 2016. Marco Rubio, Rob Portman in Ohio ran well ahead, but even Pat Toomey. Richard Burr, all ran ahead of Trump in 2016. So it's entirely possible for a Senate candidate to run ahead of the top of the ticket, or in this case, the president's job approval. The question is, can they run that much ahead of a president whose rating is 40, 41, 42 percent? We don't know. We're going to find out.
0: Well, Boy, there's so much to unpack there. I, I I had to fill up multiple spaces in my parking lot of ideas that I, I want to circle back to. Let me start with a continuation of kind of that opening theme of, of where we're at, because as an experienced pollster, pollsters are always at pains to remind their campaign clients, this is a snapshot. This is where we are today. No guarantee of where we're going to be in two weeks on election day or, or whenever. And so the hardest thing to do is to try to sort of Put your mind ahead and skate where that puck is going. Here's where I'm going to call for some speculation here, and that's totally unfair of me to do. I'm engaged in a little bit of a back and forth with a Republican friend of mine. I made the following case. I I said, look, I know things aren't great today, but gas prices have come down about 75 cents from their high over the last two months. If they continue at this current rate and trajectory by election day, they would be down in the low $3 range, about 315, 320. That's where they were a year ago when we started to see this price increase. We're starting to see some prices coming down on food items. These are these are kind of the everyday things that really hit people in their everyday experience and that really put inflation top of mind. We're, we have some time for some of the achievements that we've seen in Washington to bake in just a little bit and kind of dispel this idea of Democrats are all at sixes and sevens and have no idea what they're doing. The point is, there's kind of a good trajectory here that may get better in two months. My friend's response is, Matt, you're insane. Have you looked at people's feelings about inflation, their assessment of the economy, the fact that despite the good jobs numbers, they think the economy is in a recession? Why? Because prices are through the roof. They can't afford anything. They feel totally down in the doldrums and they're blaming Democrats. You're insane. This is still going to be a really, really rough year for Democrats. So I'm going to make you the jury judge and executioner on this. If I'm all wrong in terms of where we may be in two months let me know. Do I have a case here that that things could indeed be significantly different if, if we continue on this trajectory?
1: There's no question, Matt, you're right, that things have gotten substantially better for Democrats than they were six or eight weeks ago. But projecting into the future. Wait, I wanted to stop you, you got,
0: there. No, I, I don't want to hear the
1: rest of this. No, 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 no. no. You got to have the rest of it. God, damn but it. history tells us that almost invariably the president's party loses seats in the first midterm election after the president is elected. There was an exception uh, for the second midterm after he was elected with Bill Clinton in 1998, where Republicans overreached on the whole impeachment imbroglio. But almost every time. And that's also true of 2002 after 9-11 with George W. Bush. But unless there is an overreaching impeachment or another 9-11, the history is weighty here. And the history says that Democrats are likely to lose seats in the House. I think the Senate is more of a coin flip right now. There's no question that Republicans have nominated some amateur politicians, some first time candidates who've never run for office before. And you and I both know if you're trying to do something that's difficult, generally you're better at it after you've tried it a time or two. I suspect you're better at your radio program and your podcast today than you were the very first day you tried it. So you've got a number of Republican Senate candidates who are going to be under enormous pressure with an incredible spotlight on them where their every word gets weighed and measured. And it remains to be seen how well they perform. They may perform just fine. But any time you have somebody who's never done something like this before, the burden of proof is on them to show that they can meet the moment. And we don't know the answer to that yet. I want to circle back now
0: to one of those many cars that we (laughs) left in the parking lot and talk a little bit about presidential approval rating. There's been a little bit of movement for Joe Biden, about three points in the last, let's call it six weeks. So I I guess my first question is, is this a dead cat bounce? I mean, was he was he essentially at such a low point that there was only one direction to go or is it tied to something tangible that's happened for him or that he and Democrats have done that is clawing back a little bit of that ground?
1: First of all, it helps to remember that Joe Biden 18 months ago had majority job approval. He was up in the mid-50s. And in my humble judgment, the decisions that the administration has made have squandered that job approval. He had a premature declaration of victory over COVID on July 4, 2021 that damaged his credibility. He dismissed inflation as a temporary phenomenon. Remember that? And that damaged his credibility. And then there's the coup de grace, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan which embarrassed America in the eyes of the world. uh, And it seriously undermined Joe Biden's image as an expert in foreign policy. Once you've had a debacle like that, that goes right at the heart of what you claimed you could do, it really digs a hole for you. And people start saying, is this guy just not up to the job? Once they start saying that, it becomes very difficult to pull out of that that hole. Now, that said, if things start going better, it may very well turn around a little bit, as you have already indicated. But he's still a long way from 50% job approval. And I don't see anything on the immediate horizon, including the various pieces of legislation that have passed, that are likely to get him back up in the 50% range. Now We'll see, but an awful lot of people have, have made up their minds about this president, and their judgment is not particularly positive. To
0: follow up on that, one of the interesting aspects of the disapproval and, dare I say, outright hatred of Joe Biden is that Of the examples you cited a moment ago, where there are clearly things to criticize. I, as a Democrat, can criticize Joe Biden for missteps and mistakes over the past year. Even prior to that, we saw the emergence of the let's go Brandon meme, the reaction where a crowd was chanting an expletive about Joe Biden, and it was misinterpreted by a reporter as let's go brandon to me i've found that a little bit baffling if that had emerged say 6 months ago perhaps 9 months ago in the wake of some of those missteps i guess i could understand a little bit better some of that that anger some of that some of that hatred that we're hearing expressed but the fact that it preceded all of those moments, it, it it just it's always been a little bit of a head scratcher to me because to me, Joe Biden has always come across as something of an anodyne political figure. He's, you know, he's not exactly lighting the world on fire here with his rhetoric. He's not way out there. He was clearly a consensus choice of, of Democrats who thought he was sort of the most moderate, acceptable figure that they could put forward to. What do you attribute? The level of vitriol that we've seen in opposition to Joe Biden. Why does he draw so much anger and resentment?
1: Matt, it's totally a function of our toxic political culture and the descent that we have gone down in what is normally considered or had been considered acceptable political rhetoric. Things have gotten continually worse over the last dozen years. And they ratcheted up dramatically in 2016 throughout the Trump presidency. So there's plenty of blame to go around on all sides. You also have the more extreme voices on both the left and the right that get amplified by talk radio, by our partisan cable channels, by especially social media, which has been an absolute disaster for civil political discussion. Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and all the social media outlets amplify the more extreme voices because those extreme voices are the ones that get reactions. And the more reaction you get, the more famous you get. And so what that does is create this feedback loop where the angrier voices get more visibility, which makes them louder, which gets more visibility. And before you know it, you end up with a bunch of people screaming at each other on Twitter or Facebook and talking past each other. We now have a situation where Almost a majority of Democrats believe that Republicans are not their adversaries, but their enemies. Almost 60% of Republicans think that Democrats are not their adversaries, but their enemies. And it makes it very difficult for a democratic political system to work when you view people on the other side as your enemies, as an enemy to the country as opposed to your adversaries who may be naive and misguided and have wrong ideas, but still basically good Americans. And that's the challenge facing our democratic political system now. I I think we're facing a serious crisis, and it's a crisis driven by toxic polarization. And the words that are used to describe Joe Biden by the far right and donald trump by the far left are symptomatic of a very deep disease in our policy in our politics i'm afraid i just to
0: comment on that for a second there are people that i work with in my writing and in my radio work and and podcasting who take a different approach than i do to conversations with people who are political adversaries. And I have a show entirely dedicated to talking about policy and welcoming perspectives from across the ideological perspective, great ideas. And I go out of my way to invite on experts with very different views than my own, or then I would say the majority of my listeners, folks from institutions like the Manhattan Institute and American Enterprise Institute, and people who I will just pass along. This is a bit of an anecdote, and I apologize to my mother, who's probably listening to this, but my mother, who is an Upper West Side of Manhattan liberal, was listening to Brian Riedel, who is the budget director for the Mitt Romney presidential campaign talking about the budget deficit. And we finished the show and she said, you know what? I don't agree with him, but that made me think a little bit differently. And I said, that's that's the whole idea. That's that's all I'm going for here. You don't have to agree, but I I always find those experiences eye-opening. So for people who have made it this far into the show with one of the top Republican pollsters out there, and you're a Democrat and This isn't necessarily your cup of tea. I commend you because I actually think, without trying to toot my own horn, I actually think more of this kind of thing is good, and maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it doesn't solve our problems, but I'm out of ideas otherwise. I don't think we're going to find the solution on Facebook or Twitter. I've got to hit you with one more that I don't think necessarily goes just to Joe Biden, just to our our current president. Derek Thompson, a writer in The Atlantic, tweeted something last week that kind of struck my eye. He wrote that between 1950 and 2002, every president of the United States but Gerald Ford had enjoyed a full year of 55% approval rating or higher, but it it hasn't happened once since 2003. What do you make of the usefulness of presidential approval rating, from your standpoint as a pollster these days, and not not merely dealing with our, our current president, what is it reflecting and saying? I have a bit of a theory about this, but I'll 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 let you actually respond.
1: Well, there's no question. You're right that the margin between Democratic approval and Republican approval of whoever is the president at the moment has been widening substantially over the course of the last quarter century. That's a function of our toxic political system without question. But that doesn't mean presidential job approval is irrelevant. In a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, it really helps if you have a majority of the people behind what you're trying to do. Joe Biden had a majority of people behind what he was trying to do until he launched on some of the decisions that he made. I, I happen to think that this Build Back Better, hanging on to Build Back Better as long as he did, was a real problem. It delayed passage of a bipartisan infrastructure bill when he desperately needed a win, a, a bill that actually does a lot of good for a lot of areas of the country that supported Donald Trump, like high-speed internet in rural areas. But rather than being going out and touting an early victory on that. He tied the bipartisan infrastructure bill to this build back better bill that was never going to pass in its current form, if you actually listen to what Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema said. So he finally gets an agreement on the infrastructure bill, has a press conference, and then announces he's going to veto it if it's not linked to the build back better bill that wasn't going to pass. I mean, talk about stepping on your own success. And and so what did this this hanging on to this huge Build Back Better bill do? It raised the expectations of liberals before it dashed them, which left the left demoralized. It made the people who voted for him as a center-left moderate feel like they'd been sold a bill of goods, that he ran for president one way and then governed in another. And it made him look weak because he wasn't able to get his own party to go along with his wishes. So... Their reasons and, and then you've still got other things that are are desperately needed. This electoral count Act of 1887 is a horrible piece of legislation with all kinds of ambiguities that led up to January 6. It desperately, desperately needs to be reformed. There's a bipartisan group of senators working on it. And for the longest time the attitude of the administration on that was, It's a distraction from the more important voting rights bills. Now, they've finally gotten their act together and are apparently going to support it. But I'm sorry, if your house is on fire, you go put out the fire before you talk about how you're going to design the new wing on the other side. And our electoral house is on fire in part because of the Electoral Count Act of 1887. So I think the administration missed a lot of opportunities to get a win, to get the country behind them, to do things better, apart from the Afghanistan debacle, and that those events caused this president to lose majority job approval. It's still important to have majority behind what you're trying to do. You have a lot more juice in Congress, and you have a lot more support in the country. I wonder, though, what we're measuring. And
0: I I want, I want know I'm aware of the dangers of asking an expert in public opinion research, this question, because it, it displays a certain skepticism of public opinion research. I worry often that when we undertake polls, there's something major lost in translation. Now, I've worked with some outstanding pollsters more on the Democratic side, and I know just how much work you all put into trying to think very carefully about everything you do, the order of questions, how they're worded, how they're rotated so that people are, are, are getting, sometimes they're getting one first, sometimes they're getting another first. And yet I still fear that something ends up getting lost in translation. And for example, I, I suspect that when we ask a question like, do you approve of the job the president is doing, I suspect that there's a major gap there. And that what most people hear is, how are you feeling about stuff right now? And what they reflect back is largely these days, I'm feeling terrible. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you look at the last 50 years of right track, wrong track rating, according to Gallup, that's about the length of time they've measured it. The median figure of wrong track is 68%. Americans are unhappy about the way things are going, and they kind of have been at baseline for a long time. Now, to be fair, we haven't seen this disconnect when it comes to presidential approval rating. That didn't really crop up, as Derek Thompson said, until the early 2000s. But I just wonder about that connection between the actual job that our political leaders are doing and the way people are feeling and and whether that connection is, is all that strong altogether. Over the last few months, under President Biden, we've had the gun deal and the the toxic burn pits deal for for veterans. And we had the infrastructure deal right before that. And we've had progress on inflation. And we killed the world's number one terrorist. And there, there is a pretty good list of accomplishments that are cropping up here. And I don't think we're going to see that fully reflected in people saying, I kind of approve of the job the president is doing. So am I am I kind of off on this or do you
1: do you feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect there? Matt, there's no question that it's harder for a president to get substantial job approval in the 60s for example. It's just very very difficult because of the partisan nature of our politics today. The the basic reaction of Republicans is to dislike a Democratic president and vice versa. You also have a problem, a, an electorate that feels like they, their views aren't getting reflected. The Democratic agenda tends to be driven by the left. The Republican agenda tends to be driven by the right. But the vast majority of frustrated Americans are in the middle of the ideological spectrum. Look at Gallup data, 37 percent, the largest number, say they're moderate, with declining numbers of somewhat liberal and very liberal and somewhat conservative and very conservative. And they feel like the primary process is coughing up these extreme candidates on both the left and the right, and that no one's speaking for them. And so the dissatisfaction causes Americans to vote against whichever party's in power, So you have this ping-pong government. So in 2006, we get upset with Iraq and throw out the Republicans. In 2010, upset with Obamacare, throw out the Democrats. In 2018, upset with Trump, we throw out the Republicans. 2022, looks like we're going to throw out the Democrats again. And so you get this ping-pong government that goes back and forth, back and forth. I'm convinced that if one party could get control of the presidency, the House, and the Senate, and not overreach, and not give in to their wings, they might actually govern for a while, because that's where most Americans are. But that's not the government that most Americans perceive that they're getting. And so, that dissatisfaction, as well as the long-term decline in trust in all of our institutions, government, churches, schools, you name it, creates a more difficult environment for a president to get substantial job approval. But as we saw with this president, you can get majority job approval. He started off with substantial majority job approval before things started to go south on him. Well, just to underscore your point, I-, I read your book, 2016
0: and Beyond, which I commend to people. Read ideas that you're not necessarily open to from the start, folks. It- it- it's it's eye opening and helpful. I thought you made a very, very compelling case based on your own survey research and the, the work of, of other people that were fundamentally a center-right country. Now, that averages can be misleading. It's like the guy with his head in the ice box and his feet in the oven. And on average, he feels like a center-right country. He feels pretty warm. I, I, you make a case that, in general, people do kind of fall into that middle. and Maybe that does explain kind of that thermostatic reaction we get whenever we get one side, it's just, it seems like it's easier. It's it's almost like you're serving in a tennis match. If you're on the outside criticizing what's going on and saying that it's too extreme. And that does seem to be the messaging that we're seeing from both parties right now. We are focused on what you care about inflation prices, the economy, the other guys, they're just too extreme. And that's, that's essentially what the tussle is about. So let me ask you about some, 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 The way things, I used to think the the way things worked When I was a congressional staffer and I started on the substance side, not the politics side, I cared a lot about legislation. I cared a lot about getting stuff done. And so it meant a lot to me when we could pass a meaningful bill that accomplished something. And then my envisionment was, well, now my boss is going to be able to go out and campaign on that. And that'll, that'll make a difference in her or his race. Increasingly, I don't think it really does. You brought up the example of the infrastructure bill. There was just an announcement the first 166 projects went out. They're benefiting largely, as you said, Trump, majority Trump areas. I don't think people know about it. I think that the most recent polling said that 24% of Americans know that it exists. And I don't think people care. Okay, that was a long windup up to a question to you here. Democrats seem to, in their kind of lightning mood vibe that they're in right now, be saying aversion to themselves of, you know, in Congress we've accomplished some real great stuff recently, and now we've got stuff we can run on. Does it matter? Does legislation do do, do substantive accomplishments really matter anymore in politics? Or is it just kind of like a long-term brand vibe type thing?
1: Matt, I was budget and policy director for a very fine South Carolina governor, Carol Campbell. And I came to have real respect for a governor's office and a governor's power in the ability to make a difference in the lives of their constituents. We were focused exactly the same way you were on making things better through legislation, through the actions of government, creating more opportunities for people to succeed, holding down a tax burden, creating an environment where people wanted to start businesses and grow jobs, where the substance really did matter. We have had in more recent years, politicians whose goals are more to get on cable news to build up followers on twitter to make news by being inflammatory as opposed to making a difference by doing their job in congress i i really hate that progress it's not progress i really hate that tendency among some of the newer politicians who would really rather get on TV than pass meaningful legislation. That said, I still think, and this may be as much faith as data, I still think substance matters. I still think it makes a difference if inflation goes up or down. I think it makes a difference if our country looks like they know what they're doing in foreign policy as opposed to looks like a debacle. I think it makes a difference if we have expanded opportunities for job growth and development and entrepreneurial endeavor, I really do think it makes a difference. It may not have the substantial impact on a job approval of a president, but I still think it makes a difference. And I think it would have made a difference for this president if he had gotten the infrastructure bill early. And then if he'd gone out rather than beating his head against the BBB wall, if he'd gone out selling it around the country, maybe you'd have more than 24% of the people in the country who knew about it. If he had spent serious time selling that accomplishment to the country, including in, in Republican areas. So does, it, does substance matter as much as it used to? No, because of all the other chaff out there, all the other smoke and fire and vitriol. But I still think It's a mistake to conclude that substance doesn't matter at all. And as you said, Joe Biden's job approval has come back a few points. Why has it come back a few points? Because he started to get some stuff done. Mm. I don't want to put you
0: on the spot here in terms of you're actively advising campaigns right now. So without getting into any specifics, it used to be the case. I worked primarily for members of Congress who are Democrats in difficult districts for Democrats to hold. I worked for a member of Congress in the second district of Maine, which is right now, probably one of the toughest holds for Democrats in the country. And of course, in the second district of New Hampshire, again, another very, very super swingy district. And it used to be very important for us as part of our messaging to talk about areas where when George W. Bush was president, here are things that we agree with the president on. Here are things where we don't agree. And here are things where we could work together and maybe find a compromise. I'm wondering whether, as you advise candidates these days, do you still advise them to highlight and message about areas of compromise, areas where they're working with the other party? Or have we really become entirely overtaken by the politics of motivating our bases and getting them to turn out.
1: I advise them to talk about how life is better for their constituents because they served in office. Mm. The word compromise is not quite as positive as it was 10 or 15 years ago, but that doesn't mean that they can't talk about accomplishments that they achieved sometimes working with the other side, that make life better. And it's more a matter of, of how you you phrase it. But being effective in office at making things better for their constituents still works. And then the question is, well, how do you go about it? Well, you can talk about the fact that you've actually gotten something done rather than spent all your time typing away on Twitter and running on cable news, running into a cable news show. So, yeah, I mean, I I think I think it still does make a difference, but you have to be careful in a partisan environment exactly how you phrase what you've been doing. There is still a constituency out there with it within shouting distance of the center for politicians to get stuff done and to solve problems and to come up with real solutions. And if they have to work with members of the other side in order to get there, people are fine with that, as long as the focus is on the solutions and making life better, as opposed to the process by which they got there. It's funny, I can hear the wisdom dripping off of everything you're saying. It sounds
0: incredibly smart, but there's still a part of me that, that, that can't help regretting that what used to be a virtue. That, that explicitly pointing out, I mean, we're on air on radio in New Hampshire, home to one of the most watched Senate races in the country, featuring incumbent Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan. Her messaging in her three runs for governor and then in 2016 for U.S. Senate. I, I mean, boy, if I had a dime for every time she talked about coming together and and finding compromise and common ground with the other party, I'd be a wealthy man. And so. It just the 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 turn and the relatively rapid turn from that language being an explicit virtue to being something that is acceptable is it, it's something that I, I I'm not thrilled about. Let me quickly hit you with your impressions of the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Again, caveats understood that you have some relationships with some of the folks that may be in that race. How do you see that shaping up? Is it is it Donald Trump's race to lose? And has his position been improved in that primary in the wake of the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago?
1: Matt, the Republican Party is split into three factions. The smallest faction are the never Trumpers, the people who are appalled by Donald Trump, who never voted for him, who disapproved of his job performance, who don't want him to run again. That's somewhere around 10% of the party. Mm. There's another faction that's the always Trump faction. These are people who love Donald Trump, feel like he has got their back against the woke mob, feel like he will fight for them and will go to the ends of the earth to support them, and they will walk through a wall of flame to support him. That's somewhere around 40%. Then there's the largest block, about 50% or so, give or take five points, who are maybe Trump people. Mm. These are folks who voted for Trump twice, who approve of his job performance when he was would vote for him again against Joe Biden in a heartbeat, but are aware of the fact that he brings so much controversy and so much drama and so much baggage to the race that they are at least open to looking at someone else. That doesn't mean they're going to go with someone else, but they're at least casting their eye out to see what their other options are. You don't know how they're going to end up, but there are a lot of them that just don't want to go back to all the fights they had with kids, with their relatives, with their spouse sometimes, with their friends. They, they'd like just not to have to go back to that sort of drama. So a lot of that depends upon who emerges as an alternative. There's no question that what you said about the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago has caused a rally around a Trump phenomenon right now. We'll see how long that lasts. We'll mm. see what was Taken out of Mar a Lago eventually. But I think that that initial feeling may dissipate over the course of the next year. And there must still be that group of people who are open to someone else. Now, that said, Matt, Donald Trump didn't get a whole lot more than 40% in most primaries in 2016. The non Trump vote was split 16 other ways. So 40% in a primary in a winner-take-all state, which still dominate Republican primaries, is a very significant base of support. So it's obvious, based upon that, that Donald Trump is the favorite to win the nomination. But we have no idea what's going to happen over the course of the next year, legally, morally, financially, in terms of health. We just don't have any idea. And and so anybody who's making confident conclusions today about something that's going to happen in the early months of December, early months of 2024, is really going way out on a limb that I don't want to go out on.
0: Well, everything about that reminds me of that Don Henley line that the more I know, the less I understand. And that's the way I feel about the 2024 primary. That's the way I feel about American politics these days. But I feel like I understand things just a little bit better on the basis of our conversation. And I really appreciate it. And by the way, 10 years ago, Whit Ayers was very helpful to me. I was a Democratic staffer in the New Hampshire State Senate, and we worked together. We came together, in the words of Maggie Hassan, to collaborate right. a little bit to fix a bad law in New Hampshire that we we got that got better and we improved yeah, we people's did. lives. So, Whit,ers thank you very much for that and for all of your insights here.
1: More than happy to be with you, Matt. Really enjoyed it.